I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hello, listeners. Today, we are so excited, so beyond excited, 
to be bringing you an interview with Sir Jonathan Bate and Eric Rasmussen. They are here today to discuss their work, especially on the recently published second edition of the Royal Shakespeare Company's first folio of William Shakespeare's complete works. Jonathan Bate is Professor of Shakespeare and Renaissance Literature at the University of Warwick. Widely known as an award-winning biographer, critic, and broadcaster, Bate is the author of several books on Shakespeare, including Shakespeare and Ovid and The Genius of Shakespeare, which was described by Sir Peter Hall, founder of the RSC, as, quote, the best modern book on Shakespeare. Eric Rasmussen is professor of English and director of graduate study at the University of Nevada. He is a co-editor of the Norton Anthology of English Renaissance Drama and of the forthcoming new Variorum Shakespeare edition of Hamlet. He has edited a number of works for the Art and Shakespeare series, Oxford's New World Classics, and the Revels Plays series, and is the general textual editor of the Internet Shakespeare Editions Project. They are here today to discuss the newly revised, wonderfully authoritative first folio of William Shakespeare's complete works, edited by acclaimed Shakespearean scholars and endorsed by the world-famous Royal Shakespeare Company. Combining innovative scholarship with brilliant commentary and textual analysis that emphasizes performance history and values, this landmark edition is indispensable to students, theater professionals, and general readers alike, and it's now available wherever you get your books. Now, please enjoy our conversation with Sir Eric Bate and Eric Rasmussen. Oh, and one last thing, listeners. It's been a while since we've had to start an episode like this, but you'll hear my audio is a little bit funky in its quality for this interview. We had some interesting technical issues with our platform that we've never encountered before. And even though my setup is the exact same as it always was, uh, something seems to have affected my audio that we did not catch in our soundcheck or uh, here during our recording. Anyway, please forgive that and really enjoy this incredible conversation that we are so excited to share with you. Thank you. Okay. Hello. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Eric Jonathan, how are you doing today? Doing really well, thank you. Yes, thanks. Corey, how are you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Eric, sorry, I totally skipped over you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Um, we're very excited to be talking to you today. My first question for you, I want to start with a little bit of background for each of you. What was your first experience with Shakespeare? Well, shall I go first on this? This, this is a great question, because actually, as well as having the second edition of the Royal Shakespeare Company Complete Works out, I've also just published a memoir about my life with Shakespeare. Uh, it's out in the UK now, coming out in the US later in the year, plug, plug. But in that, I talk <laughs> about my first encounter with Shakespeare, which was not a very happy one. Uh, we read Othello at the age of 14 in high school and saw uh, a video recording of the, what now looks like terribly racist, uh, Laurence Olivier production, in which a white actor was blacked up with boot polish playing Othello and the language he was kind mm -hmm. of faking British Caribbean orotan delivery. It was just embarrassing. Uh, fortunately, though, the next year, I had a different teacher in school. Play was Macbeth, and we also had a great drama teacher, and I acted in Macbeth, and it really took off from there. And Macbeth is an incredible first play for young people. It's Shakespeare's shortest, fastest, most violent tragedy, and the language is just so intense it gets under your skin. Mm -hmm. 
I'm a big Macbeth fan, just to say. Eric, how about you? (laughs) Well, when I was three years old, my parents bought a Pontiac Tempest, a a blue station wagon, and my mother named it Miranda. And then she baked a cake for it. So I'm not making this up. My very first memory is of this turquoise blue cake of a car named Miranda. And I remember asking my mother why she named the car Miranda. And she said, well, because of the Tempest. And so I was clearly fated to become a Shakespearean. It's a good cake, too. Hello. What kind of cake? Do you remember? I I have no idea. It's just blue. (laughs) (laughs) Dang it. From those first experiences, then can you speak about what made you decide to pursue Shakespeare scholarship or pursue Shakespeare professionally? Yeah, well, for me, um, I sort of you know, did a bunch of Shakespeare plays at school and then read English at university. And at that time, as a, as a student, I was very, very keen on the theatre. So I directed plays as, as, as well as studying them. I remember doing a actually really rather terrible production of Shakespeare's very last and little known play, The Two Noble Kinsmen. Uh, so for me, it was always going to be Shakespeare was my great passion. The decision was, do I go for a career in the theatre or as an academic, as a teacher, a writer, a scholar? And in a way, I kind of took the cowardly route out because I looked around at contemporaries who had gone into the theatre and it seemed to be such a lottery that, you know, the right agent just happened to see your show or not, as the case may be. Whereas I thought pursuing Shakespeare in the classroom and in scholarship, if you worked reasonably hard and you were reasonably good, you could spend your life with it. And what a great way to spend a life. Whereas in the theatre, it's that, that sense of risk that I'm afraid I didn't take. Well, I, I was interested in drama, but didn't have the chops as a performer or a, um, a director. But I was debating between going into 20th century drama or Shakespeare and, and Renaissance drama. But it occurred to me at the time that people don't need 20th century drama explained. That's the difference. But with Shakespeare, you can make 400-year-old texts relevant to them. And especially for students who have long thought these are old and boring, the fact that you can, you can suddenly make these come alive is incredibly rewarding. And so, you know, I, I clearly went the 400-year-old route. Well, yeah, we like talking about 400-year-old things, too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's why we have this podcast. Helping people realize they're still relevant. Well, and, that, and that's something that John has done really well uh, in the, the new preface to the new edition, and I will let him speak to this, um, is, is really showing what Shakespeare has to say to the issues that we think of as hot button in the 21st century. Yeah, I actually um, grabbed the list of all of them. You talk about autocracy and democracy, race and religion, sexual abuse and misogyny, sexual orientation and gender identity, wealth and injustice, migration and nationalism pandemic and climate change, the crisis of mental health, conspiracy theories and fake news, and family life as all being inside of Shakespeare and still very prescient today. In light of that, are there any plays that have recently, for you, taken on new meaning or new relevance in light of current events? Yeah, I know very much so. It's a a great question. And thank you for listing those. Uh, I'm trying to think, uh, what other hot button (laughs) issues did I leave out? I suppose one thing uh, is you know, we finished the edition and delivered it before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You kind of thought 
large-scale land war was maybe a thing of the past, at least in the West. But that is not the case. And uh, so, you know, war is, is another great theme. One of the many Shakespearean movies I especially admire is Ray Fiennes' uh, film of Coriolanus, which uh, was actually kind of shot in Eastern Europe and uh, suggests that on the subject of war, even though Shakespeare was never a soldier himself in the way that his friend and rival Ben Jonson was, war is also something, uh, the terrible cost of war, that his plays are supremely relevant to. Funnily enough, I'm just back from Stratford-upon-Avon uh, celebrating the launch of the book and Shakespeare's birthday celebrations. And the play that was on that night was Henry VI, Part Three, not one of his best-known plays, but a play about the Wars of the Roses, and indeed a play that greatly influenced Game of Thrones. And just looking at that play at a time of war just makes you think Shakespeare is always relevant. Mm. To answer your question more directly, one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about how we can take this edition that we worked on 15 years ago and really bring it into the present in the 2020s, was thinking about how extraordinarily pertinent to the issue of Me Too, of the abuse that comes from men in position of power, how pertinent to that the play Measure for Measure is. This is a play where a seemingly virtuous character called Angelo is told to deal with the kind of moral morass of the city of Vienna. Uh, he has a reputation for strict purity, but then we find ourselves in a position where a novitiate in a nunnery, a woman who wants to devote her life to chastity, comes to him to plead for her brother's life. Her brother's been condemned to death for getting his girlfriend pregnant. And of course, no abortion was available at that time. And Angelo says, if you sleep with me, I'll let your brother off. That sort of sense of offering a favor in return for a sexual favor. It's pure Harvey Weinstein. And that just makes Measure for Measure seem such a play for our time. Mm -hmm. Ripped from the headlines, I just saw on the news that a burning forest was giving away uh, Russian troop movements in Ukraine. And so it's <laughs> literally when Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane. <laughs> I think taking that question a bit further, I mean, you know, obviously the two kind of big events as uh, I was writing this preface to the new edition were the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. Uh, and in terms of the pandemic, of course, as uh, we, we say in the main introduction to the edition, plague was a huge factor in determining the shape of Shakespeare's career. Because whenever there was an outbreak of plague in London, as with our pandemic, the theatres were closed because theatre going was a super spreader event. And so the kind of rate of Shakespeare's productivity as a writer was very much shaped by the presence or absence of plague. And equally within the plays, plague can be very important. So in Romeo and Juliet, the tragedy twists on the fact that a letter is not delivered because the person who's supposed to deliver it is put into quarantine as a result of plague. Equally in terms of Black Lives Matter, Shakespeare really is one of the first dramatists in the Western tradition seriously to address the question of race. The character of Othello, who is, you know, the lone black man in a white city. It's extraordinarily powerful. And of course, down the ages has provided great opportunities for actors of colour. But also Shakespeare is so extraordinary in kind of questioning the stereotypes of race. You know, the enormously moving thing about Othello is that Othello in the end is destroyed, not because he's a bad man, but because he's a good man. 
and the person who destroys him is the white man, is the racist, is Iago. I recently curated an, an exhibition at the British Library, and one of the items I found, which I was very proud of, we were doing a uh, an exhibition of devoted to the first time that black actors played Othello, and I found a letter that Paul Robeson, the distinguished black American actor, had written to Laurence Olivier, and in it he said that he he said I'm slated to do Othello this season, but the House Un-American Activities Committee has taken away my passport. I think if you were to petition the British consulate, they might give me a visa. And we have Olivier's reply, which is, nah, I think I'll do the part myself. And he did it in blackface, uh, which John was alluding to earlier. Oh, my gosh, there's so much going on there. The Civil Rights Movement, the House on the American Activities Committee, Laurence Olivier being a jerk. (sighs) Yeah. Well, one topic that you talk about that I'm actually very curious in given the climate crisis. Jonathan, where do you see climate change and Shakespeare? Funnily enough, this is what I was lecturing about for the Shakespeare birthday lecture in Stratford um, just, just a few weeks ago. And it's fascinating. Shakespeare lived at a time of climate change, but it wasn't global warming uh, as, as we are facing. He lived at the height of what is known as the Little Ice Age, a major century-long period of global cooling. In his childhood and throughout his career, there were some of the coldest winters of the last millennium. And if you start looking at his plays, there is a very strong interest in the connection between climate and both national character and individual human character and circumstance. People in Shakespeare's time really believed there was a kind of interconnection between what they called the macrocosm and the microcosm, between the world of the planets, the cosmos. So for example, if there was a new comet or something, that was said to portend change or disaster in politics. So this idea of there is a correspondence between the planet and the cosmos and human society and individual human behavior, that everything is interconnected. It's a very famous speech in the play Troilus and Cressida, where Ulysses talks about this idea of kind of universal harmony, and you just take one piece out of it and everything collapses. If the climate collapses, society collapses, individual human behavior collapses. That sense of the interconnection of all things does seem to me highly relevant to the climate crisis, because as Titania says in Midsummer Night's Dream, when talking about disruption to the climate, she says, we, we humans are the cause of this. The Tempest, of course, play named for for a storm. You know, we live in this time of extreme weather events of hurricanes and so on. Shakespeare's last solo-authored play, The Tempest, play that heads up the first folio as if the fellow actors who prepared the book wanted it to be the showcase of Shakespeare's art. It's a play that begins with a powerful man, a magician, a kind of uh, scientist or technologist, controlling the elements in order to exercise his power over his enemies. But he has to learn in the course of the play to release that desire for control. I would suggest that the spirit of the island of the Tempest, the spirit named Ariel, interestingly, an ungendered character, we should call Ariel they, not he or she. Mm-hmm. Ariel represents in many ways the atmosphere, the air, the climate, and Prospero has to learn to let Ariel go, not to try to control the elements. And there's a tremendous lesson there. And I'm just waiting to see some really strong climate change productions of The Tempest in, in coming years. 
yeah, that'd be very exciting. And Eric, I do want to make sure that we also get for you, are there any plays that have recently taken on new meaning? It's a good question because I have been using for years the example of measure for measure. For me, the key instance of, of you know, Shakespeare is interested in sexual harassment years before the Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas hearings, you know, a, an issue that we thought was, you know, new in the 20th century, because in the scene that John just quoted from, Isabella says, you know, I will proclaim you, I will tell everyone what you just did. And Angela says, who will believe you? I'm in power, you're not, I'm a man, you're a woman. You know, it's textbook sexual harassment. So I, I really expect that play to have, to have a renaissance, maybe it already is, in the Me Too movement, because there's so much to do there. Yeah. And then there's that connection between how we're thinking about Shakespeare and how we practice it on the stage and what that turns into. And it sounds like there's a lot of very pertinent things to explore on the stage. Yeah, I think we're at a very interesting time now in um, the production of Shakespeare on the stage. Things like cross-gender casting uh, have just sort of become a norm. And in a way, that's, that's fitting because after all, there was cross-gender casting in, in Shakespeare's time in that the female parts were played by young male actors. And partly because of that, Shakespeare does have this extraordinary interest in some of his comedies in the whole notion of gender fluidity, which is another mm -hmm. sense of his contemporaneity. Interestingly, the, um, I was mentioning the play on at Stratford-upon-Avon at the moment, Henry VI, part three, where the character who eventually becomes King Richard III plays a major role. It really sort of sets the stage for Richard III. And I think for the first time in the history of the Royal Shakespeare Company, that role, which is going to be reprised in a production of Richard III, but will open in the fall, that role is being played by a disabled actor. And uh, he's remarkable, actually. He's called Arthur Hughes, who has a severely damaged arm. And seeing an actor who has really experienced what Richard experiences just makes complete sense. And I, I suspect just as now for perhaps 30, 40 years, we've been at a moment where a white man cannot play Othello unless you do that kind of complete reversal that there was in that Patrick Stewart production where he was white and mm. everybody else in the cast was black. But just as now no longer a white actor can play Othello, I suspect before too long, we're going to find that no longer can an able-bodied actor play the part of Richard III. And I think that's really going to make us think about Richard III in new ways and not just see him as the, you know, the traditional hunchbacked villain. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because there was a couple of years ago a uh, production of Richard II by a cast that was all women of color. And I had a graduate student who was over with a group and this was going to be the first Shakespeare play she ever saw. And we were all very excited about what they were doing. But I actually found myself thinking, gosh, I wish her first experience of a Shakespeare play could have been a normal production. And, and catching that normal in my thoughts uh, was revelatory, that even as gender-blind casting, racial-blind casting and things become standard and, and doing really interesting things in really interesting ways, I, there's still this sense of normalcy, the way it should be done, which conservative critics have mm. always been, you know, I, I, I have to say my, some of my favorite Shakespeare in recent years has been Harriet Walter playing lead male roles 
in Julius Caesar and The Tempest mm-hmm. and Henry IV. But there, too, quite a number of the early reviews were complaining that this female actor was inhabiting these Shakespearean males. And uh, Harriet Walter has written quite brilliantly about she, she was sick of playing. She played all the female roles and there was nothing left for her. So she said, I'm going to do these. More power to her. To give the, as it were, the conservative view a little bit more space, I think, you know, it can be a problem. Um, I helped out a bit on um, Julie Taymor's two Shakespearean movies, Titus Andronicus and The Tempest. And I felt there was a problem with her Tempest movie. The problem wasn't Helen Mirren playing the part of Prospero, but it was Helen Mirren playing the part as Prospera, the mother of Miranda, as opposed to the father. And that play is so much about Prospero's exercising of patriarchal power that it seemed to me not really to work with a matriarch instead of a patriarch. Yeah. Elise and I have talked about this with like King Lear. We just had a series on King Lear and we talked about um, how female identifying women are playing the role of Lear. We have the Catherine Hunter one coming up at the Globe and there has to be a thoughtfulness that goes into the changes that we choose to make on the stage. You know, you can make a change for a statement, but it has to be grounded in something that makes sense with the text and the society and what we're trying to say for our time. And making the choice also in what are we potentially not talking about? You know, if we are losing the patriarchal standpoint of Tempest, is that what we're trying to do is exploring matriarchy? And how does that then look different instead of just change O to an A? I like to call it bumper sticker Shakespeare, slapping a concept on a play because it speaks to something or you want to achieve something, but without unearthing all of the ramifications of that choice and not thinking through that choice. It's interesting because Shakespeare is interested in chiastic relationships. You know, frequently daughters will have fathers, but no mothers. You think of Miranda and Cordelia and Ophelia, mm-hmm. and, and often sons will have mothers, but not fathers. You think of Coriolanus and, and Volumnia and Hamlet. He's got a dead father. And, mm-hmm. you know, Freud was interested in these relationships that people have with the parent of the opposite gender. And I think that gets lost, too, in those moments of, as you say, bumper sticker, swapping out A for B, X for Y. Mm-hmm. But that said, I mean, it has been, you know, a fascinating sort of last decade in the changes of Shakespeare production. And this was something that we very much wanted to reflect in the new edition. A big part of the rationale for doing the Royal Shakespeare Company Complete Works second edition was that when the first edition came out 15 years ago, it was, it was widely praised, not least because we chose to edit the folio texts, something we may talk about later, but also because of our our sense of the need to explain the language on the page, the difficult archaic language, uh, and to be open about Shakespeare's sexual puns, for example, in a way that previous complete works editions tended not to. But there were two criticisms of the edition. One was to do with some changes between the quarto and folio texts involving the use of oaths, of, of the use of the name God, of swearing. And the second, which was perhaps a more 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 genuine criticism was that it was branded as the Royal Shakespeare Company edition, but it wasn't obvious to readers in exactly what sense, beyond the use of some production photos, it was linked to the work of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Now, our response to that was partly, well, 
wait for our volumes of individual plays because they're going to have histories of the plays on the RSC stage and interviews with RSC directors and actors. But what we thought for the second edition was, can we find a way of bringing alive for readers a sense of the variety of choices that are made in different productions? So that was why we hired these two fantastic young associate editors, Ian de Jong and Molly G. Yan, and got them looking at the prompt books of Royal Shakespeare Company productions and looking at video recordings, digital recordings of a hundred RSC shows, two or three for each play in the canon, and then working on looking at key production choices, stage directions, actions, interpretations, cuts. And so we've added in these marginal notes, we call them staging notes, where the reader can really get a sense of the extraordinary variety of production choices extending from exactly things like choices about gender-blind casting to choices as to when and where a play is set to individual choices. So, for example, we were talking about Measure for Measure. The the sort of surprise at the end of Measure for Measure is that although Isabella wants to be a nun, the Duke proposes to her at the end of the play. In the text, she doesn't reply. And that creates a fascinating opportunity for directors and actors to make a decision How is Isabella going to respond to the Duke's unexpected proposal? Will she silently fall into his arms? Will she think, no, I want to be a nun? Will she turn around and walk back to the nunnery? Or will the action end with a kind of freeze frame, leaving it open for the audience to decide how it will end? And actually, the way it turned out, the three productions that uh, our colleagues looked at, each of them had one of those choices. So we hope that readers will sort of see that and think, my goodness, this is something that really could go many different ways, and what an opportunity to discuss it. What we've done is generally editions put in editorially added stage directions where the editors feel that they need to elucidate what's happening on stage. And we had done that in the first edition. And we've now stripped almost all of those out and replaced them with the actual choices that they made in the RSC. And I think this is really going to be enormously useful, certainly for my students, My students don't know that those editorially added stage directions aren't Shakespeare's, but now there'll be these choices and these differences and it's, oh, oh, okay. There's not just one way to do this. There are multiple possible approaches, readings and interpretations. And I really like that way of not only linking us to the RSC, but in in, in opening up the text and I think it will be really productive way. Yeah, just to explain that a little more for our listeners. In Shakespeare's original printed texts, there are very, very few stage directions. There are exits, entrances, music cues, killings, just occasionally, you know, hands a letter, reads a letter, that sort of thing. But in most modern editions that you read, all the sort of extra directions with the stage business are put in by editors. And so we've, what we've got is we've got the original folio directions, exits, entrances, kills him. As Eric says, we've stripped out those editorial interventions, moved them over to these marginal notes, which try to bring off the page and into life different production choices. And I can say as a theatre practitioner who owns this volume now, it's very accessible for our listeners. You have the script to your right-hand side. You have these image-evoking notes where you can really imagine what an actor was doing on stage while saying this. 
comparing one to two to three productions alongside each other. And then there's also very actionable footnotes at the bottom of the page to help access words and language that may be barriers to understanding Mm -hmm. the language of Shakespeare as well. I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But we're kind of starting to get into this process of creating this volume. And I think our listeners may be interested to learn about the process that goes into creating a complete works. You spoke to how there was feedback on edition one, and this was a chance to link this edition to the RSC more closely. Can you speak to more of how that decision really came to crystallize? Yeah, it took a long time, actually, that, um, because after we finished the, um, the first edition, we rolled out the texts in individual volumes and did link it very closely to the RSC by interviewing directors and actors who had been in particular productions and by including essentially stage histories, both the broad stage history of each play, but then the RSC stage history from the foundation of the RSC back in the 1960s through to the early 2010s uh, when those, those volumes were produced. But the challenge was how could one put this theatrical material between the pages of a single volume complete works. Because we, we were determined that we would have the text in single column, not double column, in the way that many editions of Shakespeare's complete works historically have been presented. And as you were saying, having really clear explanatory notes, explaining the difficult words and grammar, explaining all those allusions to classical mythology and so on that are less familiar to modern readers. And we also wanted to make sure that although we were editing the primarily for 36 plays that Shakespeare's fellow actors gathered in the first folio. We wanted it to be a complete works. So we also included his poems and sonnets and a couple of collaborative plays that were left out of the first folio. The effect of that was that the book was two and a half thousand pages long. Um, And indeed for the first edition, at the last minute, the publishers told us that no binding machine in the world would take 2,600 pages uh, which is what our draft was at. And so we had to start making some cuts and we cut out some of Shakespeare's non-dramatic works, poems called The Lover's Complaint and The Passionate Pilgrim. This time round, uh, we were told, you've got a slightly bigger page size um, so we can put back in those works that we cut out and there would be more room on the page. And it was at that point that we sort of brainstormed it and we came up with the fact that particularly where Shakespeare's writing in verse, two-thirds of his works are in verse, not prose. There's plenty of blank space um, at the end of the verse lines. There's this lovely empty right margin. And I think that was then we thought, yeah, what about reflecting productions in those white spaces? So we got talking to Gregory Doran, the artistic director of the RSC, and together with him and his team, we selected two or three plays. The idea was to have three productions for every play. Unfortunately, a couple of them, there were only two productions that digital recordings of um, existed. So that, that was the process. And then I went to Eric and said, well, we're not going to be able to do this ourselves. And also, we're, we're these two old white guys. We need a bit of youth here. And Eric, talk about how, how you orchestrated this extraordinary work that our, our young associate editors have done. When we started thinking about this, we were thinking of maybe interviewing actors and directors about performance choices that they had made. But we quickly found out 
that while they could talk about the production in the sort of the overall arc, the sort of individual moments, they weren't quite as specific on. So we thought maybe we would review prompt books in the RSC archive to see if they had recorded performance choices. And that proved difficult as well. So eventually, Ian and Molly tirelessly and heroically listened to several times over, as John mentioned, 100 production recordings and noting every change they made every step of the way. It was an incredible process. I am so grateful to them. And I think their work, as you were mentioning, Elise, is lovely. It really does give one a sense of the productions themselves and as well as the decisions that they made. Yeah. And that sounds nice or useful as well, because I've talked to friends who are not Shakespeareans, partially because looking at the words on the page without any clue what's happening on the stage can be daunting. It can be limiting to read it without understanding what the actor's choices are or what's happening because it's it's just words. Not just words, but you know, it's words. I was just going to agree. It's so hard to get student, my students to think about the stage picture. You know, what is Banquo doing when Macbeth is giving himself away? He doesn't have any lines, but what is he doing there on stage? And, and they'll respond, well, I, I didn't think about him. <laughs> so it's a very different, as you were, as you were saying, Corey, mm-hmm. it's a very different relationship as a reader to a text than someone who's a, a member of an audience. And we're hoping to recreate that a little bit. I I was just going to add, sort of wearing my kind of nerdy scholar hat, that the other neat thing about these marginal staging notes is that it gave us the opportunity to address the other criticism of the first edition, which was that as a result of following the texts of the first folio that Shakespeare's friends and fellow actors put together after his death, in certain plays, most notably the Henry IV plays uh, with the language of Falstaff, Sir John Falstaff, Those plays were printed in the folio after a government act was passed, banning swearing and the use of the name of God on stage. Literally, every time anybody said, oh, God, in a play, there would be a £10 fine, which was a lot of money. And so traditionally, editors for the plays where the so-called quarto, the little paperback editions published in Shakespeare's lifetime, where they survive, traditionally, editors have gone for the quarto. And we were somewhat criticised for the fact that printing folio as opposed to quarto Henry IV meant that some of the very colourful language of characters such as Falstaff and Ancient Pistol, terms like splood, meaning God's blood, or swounds, God's wounds, were watered down. Hamlet in the folio says, oh heavens, how weary, stale, flat and unprofitable seem to be all the use of the word instead of oh God which is somehow less strong. So what we were able to do with the new marginal notes is where an oath had been censored out of the folio, we put the quarto reading into the margin. That also helps, I think, readers to see that that sense of different production choices was existing even in Shakespeare's time. Hamlet was different after 1606 Mm. when the prohibition of making swearing oaths took place, different from how it was in 1600. Similarly, every now and then, we put into those marginal notes directions from some of the early reported texts. I mean, there was a a famously inaccurate early paperback edition of Hamlet based in some way, possibly a report by an actor, possibly a shorthand, someone in the audience we don't quite know. Um, Very inaccurate text, but with quite useful stage directions. 
such as enter Ophelia playing on a lute, her hair down, singing. So we were able to uh, to sort of give a sense of those production choices in Shakespeare's time as well as our own. In your preface, you refer to Shakespeare as our continuing contemporary. And I think these marginalia that you've created really help lend to that idea of this is a living text. Sometimes I think especially, I can only speak for the American educational system, we encounter Shakespeare as something on a pedestal, something that has always existed in this form that we have today. And instead, I think your edition really helps land the idea that changes and changing Shakespeare has always been actually part of Shakespeare. Well, that's exactly our ambitions. I'm glad you feel that we've achieved it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I guess a little bit more about this process. Could you tell us a little bit more about your partnership as co-editors? What has that looked like as you work on a project as gargantuan as this? It's looked like Eric's done all the work. No, that's not entirely true, but it's uh, Eric. Eric is, <laughs> Eric is the, I mean, uh, originally, you know, I, I was asked to take this project on. I was on the board of the Royal Shakespeare Company at the time. And although, you know, I had edited one play for the Arden Shakespeare, the great, the great scholarly edition, my expertise, I think, you know, is much more as a critic, a theatre historian, a kind of communicator of Shakespeare rather than a textual editor. I went to Eric to ask him to be the co-editor because he is so damn good at the detail. He has a sharper eye for a misprint uh, than anybody I've ever met. And there's a kind of scrupulousness that is required in textual editing. Uh, And I don't think anybody in the world is better at it than Eric. So it was a great delight and honor that he agreed to take it on. Then what we did for the first edition, where a lot of the focus was on the explanation of difficult language, the so-called glossary at the foot of the page, we really wanted to make that more thorough, better uh, than in any previous Complete Works edition. And for that, we actually had a team of postdoctoral and graduate students. Eric and I were always ultimately checking, overseeing the work, but there was a real sense of a team effort there. And I think it gave a very good uh, sort of opportunity starting out in the profession to some younger scholars. So in the second edition, with just a few corrections where there was the occasional slip that went through, we've kept the glossary at the foot of the page. And we've mostly kept the texts unchanged as they were, focusing on this new work of looking at the uh, the productions. But still, obviously, the whole thing had to be reset, retypeset. So there was a huge process of proofreading that um, Eric led on with that eagle eye. But we did also um, revisit some of our choices, not least to give that sense of Shakespearean text is never definitive. There's always choices to be made. I mean, the most famous one is, as mentioning Sir John Falstaff in the Henry IV plays. Uh, in Henry V, we learn that Falstaff has died and Mistress Quickly, the tavern keeper, uh, gives this account of his death. And it's a strange line she has in the original printed texts about him holding his sheets as he's dying. And it says, and a table of green fields. Where's that table come from? The 18th century editor Alexander Pope said, oh, this must be a misplaced stage direction for a stage manager called Mr. Greenfields to bring on a table. (laughs) 
which is a ludicrous explanation. <laughs> Another editor, a much more scholarly editor called Lewis, Lewis Theobald, said, no, this must be a misprint. Falstaff is kind of, uh, he's in delirium as he's dying, and it, it must be a misprint for, and he babbled of green fields. And most editors have followed that. In the first edition, we proposed a different emendation, which was that Mistress quickly says his nose was as sharp as a pen and a table of green fields. We thought, no, maybe the and is the misprint. His nose was as sharp as a pen on a table of green fields. Tables uh, often had green bays on them, an accountant's table, or indeed a billiard table. And uh, if you think of a sharp pen on a table, we thought that's perhaps a more plausible emendation than a table being a misprint for babbled. But because we can't be certain about the reading, we thought, no, this time around we'll do something different. So we've actually this time put his nose was as sharp as a pen and he talked of green fields that talked seemed less of a stretch than babbled out of table. You know, it's a, it's a tiny thing, but you know, there are dozens and dozens of occasions in Shakespeare where you have to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. We quite like the idea of making a decision one time and a different one the other time. And again, one of the great joys of the work that Ian and Molly did is that sometimes in the marginal notes where a production used a different choice of wording from that of our text, they said so. So the reader, the student, the playgoer can see that there are these choices to be made. Oh, I think one thing that, that our collaboration really achieves nicely is that often you have editors who are good critics, but they're not really careful with the text. And sometimes you have really assiduous textual editors who don't have much to say as critics. And the beauty of our marriage is that John not only writes like an angel, but he's probably the most gifted person on the planet in making these plays relevant to the 21st century audience. It's just such a gift, his ability to do that. And then I can, you know, come along and make sure that our text is relatively accurate. But bringing these two together is really a joy to be able to now to point to a text and say, yes, an addition and say these, these introductions are magnificent. And to actually assign, ask your students to read them and know that they will not only enjoy them, but get a lot out of them. And that the, and that the text is reliable, too. That's, that's nice. Mm-hmm. And I like, too, what uh, Jonathan was saying about how choices have to be made as an editor. We have, in our synopsis episodes, gone to the footnotes, and it, there are notes of, it could be this, this, or that. What is the process like when deciding what that will be? What do you usually do? Well, it's, it's a, each decision has to be made on its merits, which is why it's such a time-consuming process. I mean, I think Eric's particular strength is in his knowledge of paleography, the handwriting of the period, and of bibliography, mm. how books were made, how they were proofread, the practice of the printing house. And that, that means in terms of making a decision on the basis of probability, if you can work out where the handwriting was misread by the printer, maybe because you know the printer's working in low light or has had a few drinks at lunchtime. Eric, you should tell your marvelous story about how they made sure that the uh, the things for pressing down the press were moist. I think that you really do need that sort of forensic understanding of what a Shakespearean script would have looked like and how a so-called compositor in the printing house 
would have set it up in print and how it then would have been proofread. So let Eric talk a little more about that because he's the great expert on this. <laughs> well, what John <laughs> is referring to is there's an early text about printing which mentions soaking the ink balls and perhaps the paper in Chamberly. Well, Chamberly was urine. So there's some evidence that urine was involved in the printing process, and as such, they had to produce quantities of it. And there are, there are some woodcut illustrations of early printing houses with a beer stein that's very prominent. So it could be the case that the compositors were quite snockered. And the, it is interesting that Shakespeare, the, the limited handwriting we have of his, he tends to close up his U's so they look like A's. And so it's interesting that in an edition of uh, Hamlet, Gertrude uh, is always spelled Gertrad, not because he thought Gertrad should be Hamlet's mother's name, but because his U's get closed up and they look <laughs> like A's. You know, I think John is also really wonderful at sort of seeing the theatrical dimension of possible variants. There's a moment in Much Ado About Nothing, the climax in the fifth act, when Benedict grabs Beatrice and says, peace, I will stop your mouth and kisses her. And whether it's Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson, but this is the moment where everyone applauds, the two have come together, and Beatrice doesn't say anything for the rest of the play. The tricky part is that that's not Benedict's line in the early texts. It's Hero's father, Leonardo, and it has been changed by editors for 300 years. And we thought, well, wait a minute, is there any way that we could restore that line to Leonardo? And my recollection is that John went into the rehearsal room with it and asked a couple of actors, could we do this? And then John, this is yours, so I won't tell it secondhand. Yeah, no, we, we, we absolutely did. And it really worked much better because the key to the Beatrice-Benedict relationship is there's a kind of equality in them, that they are a match for each other. And so to have Benedict basically saying, I'll make you shut up by kissing you, puts him into a position of dominance. But if you think about it with Leonardo, who's trying to orchestrate a happy ending, bringing them together, mutually stopping both their mouths by making them kiss, then the actors felt, yeah, that has, as I say, a kind of balance, a kind of equality. And they, they really loved it. And it is pretty weird to think, I mean, is it really Shakespeare's script says Leon, L-E-O-N, speaking that line? How can that be a mistake for B-E-N-E, Benedict? Yeah, it seems like a choice from the editors that that's what they wanted. But it's nice that you know, one of the reasons one does a new edition, people always ask, why do we need another edition of Shakespeare? Is moments like that. I mean, this is arguably the climax of the play that has been wrong for 300 years. It's been wrong in editions. It's been wrong on the stage. And to be able to restore that mm. is deeply gratifying and to, and to see it done that way now. There's another really good example that um, mm -hmm. Greg Doran, the RSC artistic director, talks about in his, his very fine preface uh, forward to the, to the new edition, which is in The Taming of the Shrew, there's been a long tradition of editors moving a particular entrance direction early in the play in which the family of Kate come on stage. Greg, when he did his production, put the entrance at the point where it is in the folio text, which meant that some of the, the kind of banter 
between Kate and Petruccio is overheard on stage. And as they worked on that in the rehearsal room, they came to realise that maybe Petruccio and Kate are playing a kind of game for the benefit of the onstage audience. And that really kind of changed his whole interpretation of the play. We think of The Taming of a Shrew as a very oppressive, misogynistic play. But if actually the whole thing is a bit of a game that Kate is rather enjoying, that leads to a very different reading of the play. So just the shifting of a stage direction, an entrance direction by a few lines can pivot the whole interpretation of a play. Yeah, and that's something I find so fascinating is how much the audience gets out of the play can be director choices, actor choices. It can change the meaning of so much. Yeah, I mean, the Shrew Shrew is a really good example of that, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Because the, you know, at the end, when, you know, Kate submits to Petruccio, Mm -hmm. in some productions, you know, she's doing it straight, in others, she's doing it ironically. Yeah. And that's why these plays are so extraordinary. They just remain so open to opposing interpretations. Yeah. I saw the Globes production in 2012 and they did it sincerely and you could cut the tension in Mm. the globe with a butter knife. Interestingly though, I I do think that is not quite right as a, I mean, well, who knows whether there's right and wrong in these things. But Mm -hmm. to me, the striking thing is at the heart of that speech, Kate basically says the wife needs to submit to the husband because the husband is the breadwinner, the moneymaker. But the person to whom she's saying it is a rich widow who's just been married for her money. She's the moneymaker. So it's got to be ironic in that Mm -hmm. respect. Mm -hmm. So I do just want to ask, what in your work is currently interesting to you? Well, I'm pretty fascinated that next year is the 400th anniversary of the first folio. And, and this is turning out to be a, a, a big anniversary. It, it's being celebrated in various ways around the world. A couple of years ago, for the, the celebration of Shakespeare, the 400th anniversary of his death in 2016, the Folger Shakespeare Library lent out a first folio to every state in the Union. And the states that wanted to host it, institutions, it was competitive. And I gave a couple of keynote addresses when these exhibitions opened. And the, the, the sense of local pride was just palpable. It was like, we've got a first folio. <laughs> and it, was, it was just so sort of wonderful and kind of weird. And I gave a talk recently in India, and they have what they thought was a first folio. And it was a very tall copy. And I told them, this, if this turns out to be a first folio, it would be the tallest I've ever seen. And I've seen many of them. And the librarian said this to the audience when he was introducing me, and the audience cheered. Uh, I have never seen a standing ovation for a first folio being very tall. <laughs> so I think, I think the 2023 is going to be a lot of fun that way. And in a way that just adds to our sense of Shakespeare, our contemporary, this book, 400 years old, containing almost all of human life, still speaking to us today. So for me, I'm passionate about what the humanities in general, literature in particular, and Shakespeare above all, can contribute, especially to young people at this very, very difficult time in the world. I talked earlier about the way in which we can begin to think about Shakespeare in relation to the climate crisis. I think we can also think very valuably about Shakespeare 
in relation to the mental health crisis, which I see afflicting so many of our young people. Shakespeare is fascinated by mental health. If you think of a, you know, a character like Ophelia, who is basically, you know, driven to madness and suicide by the fact that she's dumped by her boyfriend, um, in all sorts of respects, Shakespeare is extraordinarily tender and understanding in addressing the question of the fragility of the human mind, the fragility of human relations. And for that reason, although I've been teaching him for 40 years now, you know, I still love teaching him. And the amazing thing is, you know, you go into a classroom and uh, a student sees something that you've not seen before, or they see something maybe you had seen long ago but forgotten. I was thinking just the other day about Hamlet reflecting on his his own mental stress and his desire possibly to take his own life. Oh, that this too, too solid flesh would melt Thor and resolve itself into adieu. Adieu, a pun on the word adieu, meaning goodbye. The ghost says to Hamlet when he goes, Hamlet, adieu, adieu. How extraordinary that uh, that sort of sense of different possibilities of language contained within a single word. <laughs> adieu. Adieu. And on that note, thank you so much, Jonathan and Eric, for joining us to talk about your second edition complete works. Shall we say adieu? I hope au revoir. Adieu. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Titus Andronicus, Act 5, Scene 1, Spoken by Aaron. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves and set them upright at their dear friend's door, even when their sorrows almost was forgot and on their skins, as on the bark of trees, have with my knife carved in Roman letters, Let not your sorrow die, though I am dead.